Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. Uzobi, yes, you're going to figure out what that is because she's going to tell us. Let me welcome Dr. Neka Cedarstrom. Hello. Welcome to the Karen Hunter Show. I mean, and I, I wanted to just kind of start off by saying that I feel you with Angela Bassett, but I also got to get a shout out to my girl Viola Davis for The Woman King because she she brought it with that movie. And I know there was controversy and I know people had their moments and I know Lapita had her issues for why she didn't want to do the movie and all that's respected. But as a descendant from that part of the, the world whose ancestry traced to the fifth king's son, the, the son of the fifth king, who was also the fifth son, who conquered the Nigerian region on the western coast and to trace back to my lineage so I know where my royal roots come from. I have lots of pride and respect for them showing us truly who our people were and what we did to try and stave off the heinous crime of the beginning of the slave trade. So she will forever have a special place in my heart for that. Oh, I left the theater feeling empowered. Um, and I think Viola definitely put her foot in it, but I think, I feel like it went something like this with the, um, the racist, um, folk that, uh, and I call them racist, not because I, I think that they're um, bad people. I call them racist because they are absolutely racist because they center whiteness in everything. So this is probably how it went. We got Wakanda forever. Mm. That's a lot of pride. And we got the woman King. We can't put both of them (laughs) up there. So if we're going to choose, Viola already got, so here, and here's the other thing, right? So we, Viola already had an Oscar for, you know, the 89th Oscar for playing, I think, was it The Help? The Help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think and and then we, we nominated her for the other one with Snots and Boogers in, um, where her son was raped, where she just cried. And it was, that's the, when you knew Viola was all of the things, when she could on oh, command yeah. just give you snots and boogers. Um, and the thing with, Mer- uh, what's her name? Oh my goodness, I'm thinking, Doubt. Yes, doubt. doubt. Yeah. Um, and I just watched this for the first time because I was like, I don't want to watch priests diddling with children. I'm already pissed off. And you got y'all's Pope out here saying things. And the whole thing needs to be reexamined. And not anything to do with Jesus, everything to do with the institution called the Vatican. That said, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like that's what they, they got in the room. It's like, we can't give black people all of this, even though we should, because if it's the best. But I think it's not just black people. I think it's black women. Because I think that's where it became struggle. Because Black women have been doing all kinds of incredible things, showing the world truly that the only way to fix it is through a Black woman. And if they did that, then that would just be another institution that Black women were running things, and they would have to acknowledge that. And the beauty of the Woman King that I love so wholeheartedly was there was not one white woman at all in the entire thing. And that was a shock to a lot of people because white women always are someplace, right? They're just always someplace. So uh, I think the intentionality behind that movie of showing greatness and womanhood and greatness and blackness that didn't also have to be because of whiteness in any way, shape or form. It was, I think it was just maybe too much. It was just too much. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Because as I'm thinking, I'm like, Wakanda Forever had Julia, Julia Louise Dreyfus' ass in there. I like her, you know, there, but not. Mm. Yeah, no, you, you're saying a thing, Neca. I, I also, though, let me just fully disclose. I felt like a, a lot of those women, not Viola, should have gotten in a better shape. <laughs> I'm going to need my warriors to be in better shape. 
I'm gonna need to not see no. You out there holding the heavy spears? I'm gonna see. I need to see one muscle. We need, if, we need Michelle Obama arms on everybody. Something. No, I mean, if Holly Berry, if Holly Berry in her fifties could get in the shape for that movie, movie where she played an MMA fighter. Yes. And her, yes. she had her eight pack on. And she's in her fifties and showing her train. I'm like, I'm gonna need some of y'all. I'm gonna need to not. And it's not no disrespect, but you, y'all need to show up. You know, the way people used to get in the shape, the way Angela got in the shape. She said, I'm going to play Tina Turner. I'm going to have to go all in with the training because I cannot represent this woman with all that energy and with those arms and those legs and not show up. I'm going to need to see that. So maybe that was why they got snubbed because Gina Prince by the wood um, definitely could have been nominated. But I also feel as director, I've been like, we need to um, remember um, Twilight. When mm-hmm. they had the boy Jacob, the boy playing Jacob, they were going to replace yeah. him with a muscular wolf because he had grown up. And he was like, no, 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 hold up, hold up. I'm going to work mm-hmm. out. I'm going to go eat some burgers and I'm going to do some push ups because y'all not replacing me at this good ass job. Y'all doing three of these? No, I'll be back yeah. for it. And he right. showed up and they were like, they had to, you know, I feel like that doesn't exist. And it goes back to what I was talking about with the HBCUs earlier. But that's another story <laughs> for another day. <laughs> As an HBCU we can talk grad. about that for a while. And I yes. think there's some subliminal messaging in there as well that we could talk about for a little bit. But uh, yes, I'm happy to discuss it further with my limited knowledge on the movie industry. <laughs> I've just got lots of opinions. Here's, I mean, but this isn't this is the world that we're in where it's just full of opinions and no no scholarship. I mean, not that any of this requires scholarship because the whole academy is not based on people. Half the people voting didn't even watch all of the things anyway. And they're just voting based on uh, their their likes, just like we, we elect presidents and mayors and governors and not, not based on what they can do, what they have done, but based on, oh, he's got a nice looking family. Look at that. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's so cute. Oh, he could sing. Well, you better come on. His name is Al Green. I'm going to vote for him. I think that's Al Green. I don't know. I like the name. <laughs> oh, God, that's logic. Yeah, we don't do logic well anymore this, these days. But we're no. trying. some of us are trying to keep logic on the forefront. Well, let's walk through it. You have this PhD in medical sociology and race, class, and gender inequalities. Uh, you went to Howard University, HU. Well, you got H- that. You know. You know, you got that master's there and you, you went there, you went, to, uh, you did your BA at another school for you. And I, I've been really processing, you put together a whole business around healthcare called Uzobi yes, and I'm on the site. Why did you start this and how? The short answer is, is threefold. One, I moved to Minnesota because I married a Minnesotan. So that was just, you know, one of those things that was outside of what I expected my life to be. And when I moved here, I, um, as a clinical ethicist is my background, and we can talk about what that is in a minute, but I was working as a clinical ethicist at Children's Minnesota, and um, I was really engaged in all the state stuff around COVID. It's 2020, helping the state address the issues of disparities and inequities. I'm on these calls every morning at like 7 a.m. was a lot of work and being intentional about saying we can't keep pretending that race has nothing to do with this, right? So there's a lot of conversations about race and racism in Minnesota and addressing the COVID path. And George Floyd was murdered right down the street. That hit me harder than any of the other murders of our brothers and sisters because it was right down the street 
one. And two, I had a four-year-old black boy who I had to explain to why mommy was upset, why the whole place is shutting down, why people are burning stuff and getting angry, why daddy's mobilizing the neighbors to get stuff to take up to families in need, like why all this was happening. Having that conversation, that first talk with my son made me realize that I have to do something different. What I had done for what now like 17 years was great and set up a path that was helpful, but it wasn't the intentionality that I needed in order to make a difference. So that was my first move is I had to change and I have to change into a space that focuses on inequities and inequities around black and brown experiences in medicine. Then the second thing happened, same 2020 year, my father died in December of 2020. And I'm a daddy's little girl. I got three older brothers. I was the only daughter. Apple of my father's eye. Favorite child. You can ask any of my brothers. They'll say I was the favorite. <laughs> Very easy. No one questioned that. Um, and when my father died, he died of natural causes. And so we feel we find the blessing in that. I had this really just powerful gift of the, the realization that my family got to have uncomplicated, non-traumatic grief around the death of our father. Mm. And I had to unpack that because there were people who looked at it as weird. I remember taking my mother for a follow-up doctor's appointment the same week my father died. We had buried him. I took her like two days later to go to her doctor appointment. And my parents were married for 51 years. So this was like the first time she's by herself, right? Uh, and she tells the physician, yeah, my husband died, you know, early in the week and we just got back from the funeral. And the physician kind of looked at us and was like, why are you guys here? Like, why aren't you just kind of devastated? And my mother and I were like, why, why would we need to be devastated? I mean, he was almost 81 years old. He was a phenomenal human being, lived an incredible life, was a diplomat for the UN, an incredibly smart, talented change maker focused on changing the outcomes of people in Africa, in particular West Africa, made huge strides in his life. That's just the end of his book. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And I realized that the shock factor was because we as a family got to give dad the end that was in line with who he was. We got to maintain his dignity and value him as a human being at the end of his life, the way that he always wanted, because we were clear on who he was. And most people don't get that, which leads to the traumatic, complicated grief. If we just know who you are and what is important to you and what you value, and then advocate for that around the times when you can't advocate for yourself, that gives the gift of normal grief, mm. right? Grief is never going to go away. Everybody's no. got to grieve. That's healthy. But normal grief is what we want. So when my dad died and I had this personal experience, because I had talked this to people, I'm a clinical ethicist. I help people with these conversations all the time. Didn't really have the, you know, the personal experience until my father died. Um, and then the last thing that happened that just made all of this coalesce was when I moved into my new role, I'm the chief health equity officer for Hennepin Healthcare and first and only in the state of Minnesota. And I was thinking about the impact on our decisions on black and brown communities and how Minnesota has some of the worst health outcomes for black and brown people in the entire country, but the best health outcomes for white people in the entire country. And think about that for a second. 
I realized that I have uniquely been situated with how my life was shaped to be the voice to make this make sense and choose better options. I've been waiting for a lot of other people to do this work. My whole career, I've been looking at other folks going, why can't y'all fix this? I will do everything you need me to do to help you fix this. But when I got into this role and saw the power that I could wield in this role, the three things came together that I'm in Minnesota, having this experience with my own father and now working in a space where I see trauma happening every day, I have to step up. I can't just sit back. And so I created Uzobi, which means the heart of my father, to not only address what I believe everyone should have, which is giving people an opportunity to bring their voice back to the center of the conversation in healthcare, but to do so in a way that every experience that you have with a healthcare, anything, physician, nurse, emergency room, clinic, whatever it is, you come out of it with uncomplicated trauma. You come out of it feeling whole, feeling heard, feeling respected, um, and knowing that the people who have to make decisions about you are doing so with you and not to you. That's where it got started. Uzobi, uh, uzobiinc.com, U-Z-O-B-I-I-N-C.com. The O in Uzobi on the website looks like an Akan symbol. Um, and I love that it's the heart of your father. It's beautiful. Is that Ebo? Yes. Okay. Uh, the, the, oh, it looks like an Akan symbol. Is it an Akan symbol? It is. I actually okay. had a brother put together the design for me because I wanted to bring in my African roots. And, and the O is capitalized because my father's name is U-Z-O. And then my middle name is O-B-I. And my middle name means heart. And then my father's name. So I combined them together. And that's why the O is big. I love it. I love it. And what does this Akan symbol mean? This one I've, I've recognized. I recognize it because I'm working mm -hmm. on an Akan book. <laughs> yeah, that one is pride. Okay. Uh, um, when you when you talked about the disparities, we hear this all the time. COVID disproportionately impacted black and brown people. And initially we thought we we couldn't get it. We thought our melanin would protect us from COVID and then Mm -hmm. In the beginning, it was like, it seemed like black people couldn't get it. We were like, okay, all right, COVID. And then it flipped. And it flipped primarily because we, want, we were the bus drivers, the train operators, the, the service people, the, the restaurants. We were the nurses. We were the nurses yeah. in the hospital. We were on the front lines of this, of this pandemic. And we were bringing it back to our community. How else does it show up when you say it's racial, you know, that white folk mm -hmm. in Minnesota have the best outcomes and black people have the worst. Where does the racism show up? In a lot of ways. Uh, one, in just the culture of the institution. Uh, I wrote an article called The Burden of Blackness. I also wrote an article about the stress, the added extra stress it is of being black in healthcare. And I talk about this proverbial backpack that every black person wears as they walk in. And as I was trying to explain to many of my colleagues that I eventually I just wrote this article about, is you, you can't have a white person and a black person walking into a hospital system. They could have the same age, the same gender, the same neighborhood, same education system, right? And the same disease. And you expect the same outcomes. It's not going to work because the white person is walking in as themselves. The black person is walking in carrying a backpack of systemic racism that they can't let go. They can't put it down and it follows them in there and it's already overflowing. And when you go into a system like a hospital, you're met with humans 
who have been raised in a racist system, who don't themselves know that they're continuing to perpetuate racism, who are most of them not actively overtly trying to be racist, but because they're not actively and overtly trying to be anti-racist, they are perpetuating a system that adds to that backpack. So that white person comes out just fine. That black person dies. And the reason behind it is because they bring in all these added extras. They bring in pre-existing conditions. They bring in environmental racism, things that make our lungs not as great as the white person who lived in the suburbs because we've been breathing in exhaust in our urban community for longer, right? We may not have ever gotten a diagnosis of any lung disease, but our environment is such that it has impacted our health. We have the DNA of trauma from slavery that has been shown, science has shown it, DNA gets altered when a traumatic violent experience occurs and it is passed into the children of the person or the individual that had the traumatic violent experience. So if you are a descendant of slaves in America, I don't think any one of us has had any ancestor that did not get impacted by the violence and the trauma of the slavery system whether it was from the middle passage on through or, or the beautiful, crazy design of chattel slavery that only America created, we have been impacted. And as Resma Mackinan said in his book, My Grandmother's Hands, that lived body experience of trauma is still with us today. So we can be as healthy as we want to be on the outside, but our DNA says differently. And when our DNA gets assaulted, we have no ability to affect it. We just have to ride the wave and hope that we get to be a lucky person and come out. So what COVID did was show that the way our communities were set up, close quarters, living together, multi-generations of families, because that's who we are. We take care of our people, right? We don't put them away in different spaces. We keep grandma and mama home. That institution of our life was assaulted on all parts by a disease that was spread really quickly that impacted areas of our body that we don't know could have been affected by our environmental circumstances. Um, and once we got assaulted, there are many people who they're showing now that just because of their genetic factors, they had terrible outcomes from COVID. Mm. White people got a pass because the environment was set up differently for them. How much is also the conditioning of people who go into the healthcare fields? I was talking with Dr. Roger Mitchell, who's at Howard. Uh, university yeah. and you know I, I love him because his st backstory is so incredible but we need more doctors who are not just culturally responsive you know not just you know in the community but understand all of the facets of that when in medical school they don't teach you they don't really teach you that much about nutrition and that impact mm -hmm. you know it's all about diagnosis and medication it's all about surgery and medication it's not about right. dealing with the whole person and then they have this weird thing where i'm not I, we can't practice medicine racially but white folk don't get sickle cell and there there are certain genetic diseases that we're predisposed to and it's not just diabetes high blood pressure and all that those are to me symptoms of something greater that's never being addressed because the medical field does not really handle that and as I was walking the other morning I was thinking about all the experimentation that went on because you know we, we talk about Mengele in World War II we talk about that but I'm like no one talks about except for the the father of gynecology 
Right. The amount of, of experimentation that must have happened on our black bodies in the name of medicine and just, you know, Tuskegee, the, 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 you know, the ignoring of symptoms to see what would happen. That's just mm-hmm. one facet. There's a radiation, uh, you know, experiment that was done on black people. Yep. We don't talk about what happened to Henrietta Lacks wasn't, you know, in any way, I feel like an anomaly, but maybe the rule, because there's been such uh, a, you know, drumbeat of experimenting on black people, measuring our skulls and our thigh bones and all of this stuff that they had 400 years to just have a field day, but nobody ever talks about it. Right. And right. that has informed modern medicine about whether we experience pain or not. You know, it's like, uh, just because yeah. we endure doesn't mean it's not there. And you don't know what impact that is stifling your own pain threshold because there's a lash waiting for you if you don't keep going. Right. Every black person in America born today is a story of survival. Right. Like that, that they are a testament to survival because the system was not set up in a way to promote and protect our survival. Even when slavery was ended and the healthcare system was supposed to stay agnostic, right? Everybody needs health care. Everybody needs a doctor. They weren't. They were intentionally anti-Black in their design. Hospitals didn't allow Black people to come in for it. White nurses were not allowed to take care of Black patients, especially not Black men. So that meant, where are you going to go? Many of the newly freed slaves were given, of course, zero, nothing. So they had to congregate in what was available, abandoned buildings, any space that they could find. Disease became rampant, public health 101. You put people in spaces without hygiene and access to good cleanliness, disease gets brought up. Smallpox reigned supreme, killing off hundreds of thousands of Black people who were newly freed slaves. The only reason why there was actually anything that was a nod to caring for Black people back then was because smallpox was starting to jump into the white neighborhoods. And then the white people said, those Black people are causing us to get sick and die. Somebody needs to do something about that. So that's when the government created the Freedmen's Bureau, which, as we all know, Howard University was one of the only hospitals that are still standing. I think it's the last one that came out of the Freedmen's Bureau. And that was their intervention. But it was set up to fail. They gave like they gave like a hundred physicians to care for tens of thousands of people. So they couldn't do it. They had no resources, no hospitals, no supplies. It was a failure. And Andrew Jackson, uh, President Andrew Jackson, in all his wisdom, uh, tried to say, see, it was a bad idea to free the slaves. They were healthier and happier in slavery. Mm -hmm. And that freedom is actually a terminal disease for black people. And there were many wow. folks in this who tried wow, to agree so with crazy. that. That's so crazy. Right? Uh, just uh, language, because uh, I am uh, being impeccable with my word this year. Uh, they were enslaved. They were human beings that something happened to them. Uh, to to, to know them as just slaves puts them in a category of a thing. And these Amen. were human beings with, uh, I'm sure they had hopes and dreams, even if they were trying to be beaten out of them. But they were people that something happened to them uh and so they were enslaved and those folk were slavers and they were you know doing this to them the the notion that so much of modern medicine is rooted in this very this this depraved psychology around who we are i'm I'm watching uh zora neale hurston i just finished a documentary and she was a a anthropologist she went out and talked to people and you the, the previous anthropologist never actually went to the continent never spent time with people and didn't factor in when they showed up with their white faces, even those that, that talked to the enslaved afterwards and collected their, their memories, 
there was going to be a code switching because of, you know, like they didn't even factor in that these people aren't going to be forthright and honest with you because they don't trust you. Right. But But that made it into the medical journals and how, you know, how primitive and how childlike and how unintelligent and all of that stuff based on interactions that you don't even understand. You know, it's right. And that's still going on today. It's still going on today. I mean, Medicare was the only reason why hospitals were integrated. That took up to the 70s, right? It took to the 70s until they integrated hospitals. And they didn't integrate it because they believed taking care of Black people made sense. They integrated because the government now said, I will pay you to take care of people 65 and up. So if you just stuck with white people 65 and up, you're losing out on a lot of money. But if you opened your doors to all the people 65 and up, then you can make money. 3,000 hospitals integrated within a month after Medicare in the 70s. And then people think somehow we've jumped 40 years later that now we're all really clear and medicine is not racist and everybody got treated equally. We've never set up a system to treat people equally. Everything was based on the economic value of the body in front of them. And they saw that they could make money off of Black bodies. And so they did. It's only now that our systems are trying to push back and say, wait a minute, no, that like we are supposed to be caregivers. We're supposed to take care of people in their most vulnerable state. And that is the characterologic requirement of being in this space. So how are you going to tell me as a good person that I'm perpetuating racism? But you are if you look at the system. And so now we can try and be intentional with changing the system because people just don't know how it was set up. Schools too, by the way. Uh, NECA Cedarstrom, uh, Dr. NECA Cedarstrom, uh, her her, uh, mission is Uzobi. How do people interact with it? Is it for institutions? Is it for individuals? Uh, How would I need your service? Walk me through it. Um, it's for everyone. <laughs> and it's always funny because somebody asks, well, it's like, you know, in business, you're supposed to sort of pick a side. Is it the business side or is it the consumer side? And because it's healthcare, everyone makes up all those sections. So I say it's for everyone. But an easy way is you, Karen, you can say, you know what? I really want to know that if I got to go to the doctor, they understand who I am, what matters to me and what I value. So what do I need? I would say you would need a copy of our medical blueprint and that's what they are. It is a series of questions that we go through and ask uh, that are relative to who you are, that communicate your values, your cultural needs, the things that are important to you, the things that make you tick, make you you in a way that when physicians are having conversations with you, they need to keep in the forefront. A great example. Um, I had a uh, patient who was really, really worried and nervous about the term cancer right? They were really scared about it. It was culturally inappropriate for them to talk about cancer. They came from a particular community in the Asian continent that didn't like using that word. So when they were facing cancer as a diagnosis, their family were kind of like, what do we do? We can't tell her that she's got cancer because if we tell her that word, that means she'll shut down. Right. But we can tell her that she's got a disease that has all these things. And this is the direction we're going to go. If she had had a blueprint, it would not have been a complicated situation. If she had a blueprint. Then the physicians would have already known before even a diagnosis that this was a significant issue for her. And they would have been able to engage with her and her family in a way that respected that need and expected that value. 
Without that, it became a big dramatic event. Lawyers were called in, are we not being honest by not saying the word? I mean, it was just all this unnecessary hoopla because we have a tendency in this country to not do so good at understanding and respecting outside cultures and traditions that don't seem you know, based off of the white normativity of what culture should be. And uh, so it became an issue. Um, and then she got cared for. So I just wanna make sure that people get cared for in a way that they wanna be. So you can get uh, your end of life directives on the site. You can also uh, get your values and cultural uh, directives that you were just talking about. The medical blueprint is there. Uh, you can consult with a, with a person, with a physician. Uh, and all of that can be done at uzobiinc.com. That's where you can go. Um, will you come back, Dr. Necker? I will. Anytime okay. you want to. All right. And we could talk, you know, TV and movies and all of the things because I, I see you, you can play because I got more questions. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate you so much and uh, much success with Uzobi. Uzobiinc.com. Uh, and you can follow at obi underscore uz. See, she flipped it around. Dr. Necker uh, Cedarstrom. Thank you again. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to the Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.